heroes are an inspiring group of people. Every one of them, from the larger-than-life comic book heroes you see on the big silver screen to the everyday heroes that let us live the privileged lives we do. Every hero has a story to tell. The doctor saving lives at your local hospital. The war veteran down the street who risked his lives for our freedom. The police officers and firefighters who risk their safety to ensure ours. Every hero is special and every story worth telling. But there is one class of heroes that I think is often ignored. The entrepreneur. The creator. The producer. The ones who look at the problems in this world and think to themselves, you know what? I can fix that. I can help people. And I can make a difference. Then they go out and do exactly that by creating a new product or introducing a new service. Some go on to change the world. Others make a world of difference to their customers. Welcome to The Hero Show. Join us as we pull back the masks of the world's finest heropreneurs and learn the secrets to their powers, their success, and their influence. So you can use those secrets to attract more sales, make more money, and experience more freedom in your business. I'm your host, Richard Matthews, and we are on in three, two, one. Hello and welcome back to The Hero Show. My name is Richard Matthews. I am here live on the line with B.L. Sheldon, refers to herself as B. Are you there, B? I am. I'm right here, Richard. Good to see you. Yeah, so glad to have you here today. Um, let me do a quick introduction for you and then we'll dive right into your story. So uh, B.L. Sheldon is an entrepreneur, researcher, active real estate investor, and psychotherapist. Uh, you got a diverse career background ranging from end-of-life counseling, which is probably very difficult to do, um, to business consulting. Um, and regardless of the position you occupied, you said these two things have always remained true for you. Got a passion for real estate, been successfully investing for over 20 years, and you have been compelled to find solutions to tough problems that other people ignore, whether this is a vacuum created by sheer, by fear or sheer overwhelm, um, you will step in to deal with these uncomfortable issues head on to find a solution. And one of your primary things that you look at is the uh, intersection between real estate investing and climate change. Is that a uh, sound about right? That, that's me. <laughs> awesome. So what I want to dive into first is to find out what it is that you're known for now. What do people hire you for or what is the uh, the primary service that you provide? Is it are you uh, um, mainly a real estate investor? So you're providing services to the people who, you know, who live in your, your homes and real estate or um, you still do the therapist stuff? What's your primary business look like today? You know, that's a that's an excellent question, Richard. And I would say that because I am a person who is has multiple interests. I never really let go of anything that I've done in the past. So in other words, uh, as a psychotherapist, I still actively engage in doing work. My, my psychotherapy was not the typical kind of psychotherapy you think of where somebody's just sitting across the room from a therapist. I've always had a very kind of engaged psychotherapeutic style. I worked a lot with individuals with disabilities and I did that in the field actually out in the community. And then when it came to issues having yeah. to do with end of life transition and things like that, I would engage with the individual. I typically look at my, my psychotherapeutic work as psychotherapeutic consulting. In other words, you're not coming to me just every week to sit for hours at a time and talk about you know the, the issues of your life. It's more like there's something specific going on. You, you want to talk about how to deal with that and then I engage in counseling as a consulting format. So in other words, it's time limited. I'm not going to be there forever. We're not talking 20 years out. It's let's get through whatever this yeah. is that you're looking at and move forward with it as a consulting project. Awesome. So you're doing primarily consulting for like income produ production now, or are you still doing the, uh, the real estate stuff as well? 
Yeah, I do real estate. I can't not do real estate. Um, so it's one of those things for me that as somebody is at a point in their life where they're thinking of investing in real estate, where they have a project or a development project, or, the, or they're in the process of looking at buying a, a building, and they're wondering whether or not it's functional to purchase that product in an era of climate change and how climate change could affect them, because there's a multi-dimensional kind of uh, aspect to the changes that are occurring, it's important for people to understand how to do that productively and proactively and profitably. So I also consult awesome. and mentor and speak on those issues because everything is changing dramatically and very quickly. And so for me, it makes the most sense to empower people to look at those changes and, and be able to know how to embrace them and make them part of their consulting, I mean, pardon me, make it part of their investing so that they make wise choices. Now, prior to that, I've spent the last 20 years mentoring uh, real, you know, individuals that are in real estate and individuals that are in ancillary fields, understanding the nuances of real estate better. So it's a kind of a combination of things, but because the issues of climate change are happening as quickly as they are, there's oftentimes the necessity to help people realize you must be looking at those things to make wise choices. So um, when it comes to real estate, what are your, your primary uh, like property types for investment? Are you investing in uh, single family homes or multifamily or self-storage or you know, industrial buildings? What's your, uh, what's your forte for, for real estate? You know, it's a, that's an excellent question because I, I really have not ever met a kind of real estate I didn't like. I'm interested in all aspects. Do you like all of them, huh? Yes. Uh, real estate is, I, I will say unquestionably, real estate is an amazing field. Uh, it, it's wonderful for producing wealth. It's wonderful for stimulating the opportunity to engage partners and other people in the process. It, it's, it's a communal kind of investment, uh, which is different than, say, when you're sitting in front of your computer and you're making your decisions about stocks or bonds. That's very kind of one-on-one. -on -one. It's very individualized. But real estate is mm -hmm. a, it's a, it's a human services business. It's a people business. You meet people, you engage with people, and you transition your own life forward with real estate, and you also assist them in being able to, as investors, live productively and, uh, in, and in a positive way, engaged in their community, but also with tenants. You get the opportunity to um, oftentimes you know, provide a wonderful place for people to live, for them to engage in their businesses, whatever it might be. Uh, real estate investors are in very much the backbone of the economy. Yeah. So is your, uh, is, are your holdings primarily in one spot or the other? Or do you just, are you just sort of across the board in all sorts of different uh, investment vehicles? I enjoy all kinds of, well, I enjoy all kinds of investment vehicles, but the one that provides me with the most fun is real estate. And, you know, well, that's, that's what I mean in real estate. Is it, is it specifically like, do you have, do you have, you know, like more residential homes or do you have more apartments or do you have more self storage or like, or are you just sort of evenly across the board for, for what type that, of that? That's a wise question for me. I really enjoy providing housing for people. I enjoy the aspect of getting to know tenants. I've always gotten to know tenants. I, I don't always know every single person that's in my buildings um, or the buildings that I, you know, I'll oftentimes own with partners, but I like to feel part of the buzz of people's lives. Being part of the buzz of people's businesses is wonderful, but business tenants tend to be very self-contained. They're very engaged yeah. in maintaining the property themselves. It's usually written into your lease that way as a business owner. 
when you're talking about residential, you're talking about really understanding the nuances of people's lives uh, in a way that you provide a sense of security for them. Uh, and, and me, uh, that is an important thing. Uh, providing a, a safe, well-run, uh, highly occupied, profitable building makes a difference to me because I feel it benefits the tenant as well. Absolutely. Um, so it sounds like you, uh, you spend a lot of time probably in the multifamily space in real estate. I love multifamily. I love single family. Uh, I, large co I love large complex work. I mean, every single one of the areas that you can look at investing, really, they all bring with them a different kind of nuance and a different kind of skill set that I enjoy employing. Uh, from for myself, but then also too, it's it's really interesting the people that you meet in the real estate field. It's so creative, so visionary. Yeah. Uh, I I definitely have always found it to be a place where. Have you done any uh, working with people looking forward? Have you done any work in the residential assisted living space? That's one of the spaces I've been looking at recently. See if that's a, a useful place. Just curious if you if you've been in that space at all. Yes, I have. And I would say to you that that is a very wise place to go. We have an aging population. There's, uh, there's a need for responsible investment in uh, the types of residential communities that allow people a quality of life that is positive and proactive for them. So that's an excellent space. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a huge space. My, uh, my business partner and I were looking at, uh, at um, starting off in that space by buying an existing residential assisted living um, building um, that because you know, there are several of them that are for sale as as like a uh, toe dip into the real estate world, but it's it's an interesting space because a lot of the uh, investors I've talked to about it are like that's kind of scary because you're getting into two businesses one at once. You're getting into the real estate business on one side and the residential assisted living business on the other. So they're like, "Are you sure you want to do that?" I'm like, "I do. I actually think that would be a, a fantastic space to be in because of all the things you just mentioned, but also it's there. It's a huge and growing demand for for that. I think it's something like." Um, 10,000 people a day are turning 80 right now, um, or it's 4,000, it's going to turn into 10,000 over the next 10 years or something. It's just a huge, huge space. And, and it, you are absolutely correct. And that oftentimes is what people don't recognize about real estate is whenever you're buying real estate, you are buying two businesses. You're buying mm -hmm. a piece of land or the home or whatever it might be, the, the multifamily units, in your case, the, the retirement units or the gerontological living situations. But at the same time, you're always buying a business because even if you buy, let's say, let's say you buy a multifamily property, whether or not it's geared toward the retirement community, the minute you're purchasing something that houses multiple people, you now are no longer just buying a residence that you yourself live in. You're buying something that many people need to live in. You're buying something that therefore every single facet of that building is now your responsibility, no matter how many people you delegate to, ultimately you have the responsibility for how it's managed, how well it's maintained, for every single facet of the, the financials, how the money comes in, how the money goes out, managing everything that has to do with maintenance and repair. So it, you are absolutely right. And the people that have spoken to you about it are absolutely right. You're buying two businesses, but you are correct. Because in buying any kind of real estate, you are buying a business that just so happens to have a wonderful economic base, which is the land underneath it. So you are yeah. buying real estate, an estate that is real. And that, that comes with its certain responsibilities, but those responsibilities are an opportunity to earn profitable, a profitable income and at the same time give people a responsible and positive and proactive place to, to reside.
it's a great idea. Yeah, and and as you uh, as you you eloquently said, right, as you take on more responsibility in the you know responsibility and risk, the profit potential on the other side generally goes up with that, right? Because there's fewer people who are willing to take those risks. Absolutely. Um, so you get paid you get paid better for them. You make a more profitable business. Um, so absolutely. The so quality, the better quality you put toward the uh, the way you manage your investment. Uh, the infrastructure, the way that the building is overall maintained, the accessible aspects of it, especially if you're talking about a retirement population, the more accessible, the more well-run, the cleaner. I mean, it's, it comes down sometimes to basic things. People want to come home to a clean place that they feel safe. And you know what? People will pay well to live in a clean place that they feel safe in because that allows them to feel like they have the quality of life that they wish for. And if you're, you know, real estate is really the quality of life business in so many different areas. And that's what makes the issues of climate change mm -hmm. so impactful because climate change can change that quality of life for a building. Yeah, yeah. And like, it's, it's one of those things that's just fascinating me about that particular investment vehicle in real estate is that for, um, you know, you, when you have a residential thing and you, you, you rent it out as like a single family residence, you're renting generally to a family or something like that, and you're you're helping that one family. Um, but when and you'll you'll get a single rent check from that. Um, when you transition that that residential building into a residential assisted living building, now you might have four or five families that you're helping. Um, and because of the time of life that they're in, other things, um, you know, you can provide a really high quality of life for them. And um, the the value proposition on the business side goes up significantly, you know, instead of being a $2,000 a month or $3,000 a month rent check, it might be four or five rent checks or that are the same size, you know, of that size, um, just because you're running a different style of business. Right, exactly. I, I mean, you, you got your feet underneath you definitely in terms of understanding the profitability of real estate and the profitability of providing well-managed housing for people. It, it is a business. And, and because it is a business, uh, that's one of the things that we have to keep in mind is because so often people are making decisions about buying real estate based upon the previous trends for an area or a location. And they mm -hmm. need to factor in that as trends change with climactic change, with, the, with climate, climate is changing in ways that will impact people as well as real estate as a, a place. You know, so, real estate exists on the ground, but people need to somehow utilize that real estate. And as people's lives change with relationship to climate change, and as climate change begins to impact the, the way that a, a building can be managed and run, all of those things come together. And for owners of real estate, they, if they're not careful and they're not watching and they're not paying attention, they will begin having costs eat them alive. And something that was a profitable investment, unfortunately, can become a very unprofitable investment that then in turn, it's not a very easy thing to sell unprofitable investments. So that's why people be <laughs> on the forefront yeah. recognizing the changes with relationship to climate and how it can affect their property will go a long way so let, more profitable. Let me bring that, uh, bring that sort of home for people um, because uh, just as an example, over the last 10 years, sans the last two, um, California was in, you know, a major drought. And major drought leads to high water costs. And high water costs leads to people not being able to afford as much housing. Um, so one of the things that we were seeing in the real estate space is that higher end 
um, that you had you had a uh, a hard time in real estate if you were in the middle of the in the middle of the ground, right? And right. like in middle ground stuff. So people who had the money to not worry about it didn't worry about it, yes. and the people who um, were where you know gas prices and water prices affect their discretionary income, right. they had to have smaller houses, right? And they had to have less yards, and they had to pull out their grass and put in gravel, right? right? right. Um, and a lot of that stuff happened for what is almost 10 years of a drought and which is over now finally um and it's changing that game again but i i assume the point that you're making is that you have to pay attention to those things because they do impact the the real estate business that you would be running you are absolutely correct you're you're spot on with that and that that was a wonderful example and those kinds of examples with different kinds of climate changes are relevant through everywhere throughout the the world and we're seeing that, we're seeing climate migration, we're seeing the increase in utility costs, we're seeing the difficulty in terms of people being able to get insurance in different areas or keep that insurance for longer term or pay for that insurance. Uh, some of the most you know, beautiful areas uh, in the country are also areas that have very significant risks. And those significant risks means that insurance companies are businesses too, and they, mm -hmm. Their responsibility is to, is to provide insurance. That's their business model. So naturally they want to be able to do that. But for an insurance company, they want to be able to provide you with insurance in a way that provides them with a positive cash flow. And yeah, so, so just again, examples real quick. It's like hurricanes, hurricane insurance in Florida or fire insurance in California, like that kind of stuff. Right. You know, and then they, those are perfect examples. And, and then we take it a step further, which is, because there are more and more events that are occurring that are unprecedented. Insurance companies are having to stop and evaluate, okay, you know, like for instance, in the Midwest, an area that we think of with relationship to, they can have droughts, they can have tornadoes, mm. they can have blizzards, we're accustomed to all that. But last year, I don't know if you recall, in Colorado, they, uh, and, and in the areas just north and south of that, but it hit Colorado very, very hard. There was a bomb cyclone. That's what they called it, a bomb cyclone. And what it was, was a massive shift in, you know, uh, essentially the barometric pressure that caused an increase in the amount of snow and the severity of the conditions for a kind of blizzard that they got there. It's not unusual in Colorado to have snow. We all know that winter, it does that. But the bomb cyclone was beyond anything that people were accustomed to. Well, the bomb cyclone was gone from Colorado within 24 hours. I talked to people that were throughout Colorado at the time, chatted with some friends of mine, and they were really clear, wow, we're just kind of cleaning up. Boy, it sure was a crazy 24 hours. And, but they were going on with their lives. But over the course of the next two weeks, the entire Midwest was inundated with floods unlike anything they'd ever had before. So the event was the bomb cyclone. When it was over, something else happened as a weathered shift that involved a totally different region of the country that was not anticipating that. So many different farms, so many different ranches were literally wiped out because they were underwater for so long that the individuals who owned those pieces, uh, those pieces of land in the Midwest were unable to provide the, the kind of cash flow basis to keep their businesses operational. Because again, a farm or a ranch, it's a piece of real estate, but it's also, as you were mentioning about the retirement, the retirement uh, facility, it is also a business. So you're owning a piece of real estate, but that real estate always becomes a business unless it's just your own personal home. Other than that, real estate is always a business. So that's really interesting because it seems like um, like one of the things we talk about pretty regularly on this show is the rapid pace of advancement in technology. 
-hmm. and how that is really having an impact on our ability to build and grow and run and you know solve unique problems and it seems like what we're seeing is we're seeing a rapid pace of i don't know if you call it development in the uh um in the weather space in the climate space that we have to have our businesses start anticipating the unanticipatable here if that makes sense no you are so right richard just this last weekend uh in california perfect example uh governor gavin newsom uh was giving a press conference and i'm not sure how where you are what's going on in the area of california but because of the situation with regards to the fire and the heavy because again we've had we've been uh when we look at california we as a country have recognized that there's a drought you know rain cycle that's been happening the last couple of years they're mm-hmm. very very dry and then they'll have big storms in California that will be, you know, continuous days of rain. It's in that way, it seemed wonderful. It's refilled reservoirs and things like that. But at the same time, it's caused an awful lot of plant and grass growth in open wild spaces. What ends up happening is then the late spring, early summer comes, uh, early fall, dries those areas out, creates a mass of fuel just ready for a spark and a wind. They're burning. And California has been having that. And so one of the things that is relevant to exactly what you're mentioning is PG&E, which is the utility company in California, actually ended up because of the severity of the fires that occurred in in Paradise, which is uh, in Merced County in California. The and the Paradise Fire, as you know, there were I think uh, 87 people killed in that fire last year. And what ended up happening was PG&E. There were so many claims PG&E uh, essentially became insolvent, which meant the utility company still has to operate because it is a public utility company. So it's forced to continue operating, mm-hmm. even though technically it's lost the the strength of a monetary profile underneath it. So what's happened is it's continuing to operate, but it's operating much more cautiously. So the minute there's a high wind in an area and there's a concern- They're shutting off power, yeah. Right, the infrastructure there, they turn off the transformers in that area, which on one hand you can look at and say, that's great, people are safe. But the difficulty is those outages don't just affect people because now we don't have to worry about fire. You have people that are on medical devices that have to be run electrically. Mm-hmm. You have, uh, you know, the board and care facilities where people are residing there and they need to be able to have light to be able to get around. Some places yeah. have structural generators, some do not. But what occurs is, again, we're, we're hoping that technology will fix these things. Technology in some ways is not being as effective as we want because the reason I mentioned Governor Newsom is because here, He is the governor of the most technologically uh, continuously advancing state. We have so many social media and computer, you know, companies in this state. And I happen to be in California right now as we're having this interview. And yet he came out the other day and he made a comment about how difficult it is to to be in this state with that is so on the forefront of technological advance and that we're having to do things like turning off power to 2 million people in order to make sure that we prevent fire. In other words, technology is not moving as quickly as we would all like to address some of these changes that are happening. Yeah, and, and like not, even, not even to mention the climate stuff, just this last week, a couple of days ago, one of the, uh, there was a lady caught in that area trying to start a fire because she was you know, essentially domestic terrorism um, <laughs> to, to you know, cover it up with the, uh, the wind and the stuff. Um, anyways, wow. they, uh, fortunately they caught her, but the, uh, you, know, you have those kind of things happening as well. Yeah. Um, 
And I, I assume bringing that back to the business cycle, that means if you're in California in one of these areas, you need to be thinking about, does my business need to have contingency plans for power? Does it need to have contingency plans for fire? And how do you wrap that into your business so that if those do happen, you can still remain profitable and solvent? Perfect point. That's something that, you know, because the real estate, if you've got a business, say, let's say you're, you operate a, a florist shop, you can't, uh, you know, for those of us that are digital nomads, we can just pack up our computer and move to a different place. Yeah. But for individuals who have brick and mortar businesses, they have got to be able to find ways to be able to feel safe in the location that they're at and make their customers safe as well. And it, it is significant that these individuals rely on, especially if it's somebody who's renting a property, they're looking to the, to the property owner. How can you help me? How can we make this safer? And it becomes your responsibility, not just to your portfolio, but to your tenants to be able to say, okay, here's some of the things that we can do to create, you know, proactive change on the property so that you can feel safer keeping your business here. Because the minute you lose a tenant, you have lost an income. Uh, the part, mm -hmm. the, maybe a part that's paying that mortgage, or if it's if it's a building that has multiple tenants in it, it's paying the, that person is paying a portion of the mortgage. So it again, it comes down to it isn't just about climate; it is very much about keeping people's businesses and their lives as safe and effective as possible. And in the meantime, as a real estate investor, that keeps your portfolio as healthy as possible as well. Yeah, and it, it almost seems it almost seems like the uh, the word climate and the word climate change is almost redundant. Your business needs to be capable of yeah. handling change. Right, right. <laughs> Whether that change comes from client or technology or whatever, it's just that climate is something that is being added to that thing you should you should be thinking about. Right. Right, and especially because uh, it makes uh, it makes everyone it makes everyone from the the business or the residential tenant to the to the property owner vulnerable. And whenever you can look at a vulnerability and find ways to respond to it and feel more empowered, you're going to make better choices, more confident choices, and you're going to be able to go forward in a way that's good for you and good for the community. Yeah, and then the other thing that that's going to do is when you are capable of putting together a business that operates in tumultuous times. Um, you will get paid more handsomely for that skill set because fewer people will do the work necessary to build strong businesses in those kind of environments. You get it. You totally do get it. That's exactly correct. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a, 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 a sort of a long intro to like what it is that you do now, but I want to talk a little bit about your origin story, right? How did you get into this space? How did you get into this kind of stuff? Um, we talk on the show all the time. Every hero has their origin stories where you started to realize that you were different, that maybe you had superpowers and maybe you could use them to help other people. How did that go down for you? How did you become an entrepreneur? Well, I think for me, I'm, I am, uh, you know, my company name is Relentless Innovator, and I kind of am that. I am a relentless innovator. I am constantly thinking, I'll, I'll see something, I'll say, oh, wow, it looks like there's a problem there. And immediately I'm brainstorming ways that it can be solved. That doesn't always mean that, you know, that every idea I come up with is going to be the, the idea that the business owner wants, but it's definitely something that I've always been very comfortable doing and being. So I, I've been a relentless innovator, I'd say, from the time that, that uh, as far back as I can remember, both in, back in school as well as the period of time, you know, once I began to venture out in my career, I've always chosen careers that require so problems to be solved, that where, and oftentimes huge, huge life issues. And so, I've never, you know, that's why the book is fearless. You know, it's fearless uh, real estate investing in the era of climate change. But it's because 
fearlessness for me is what, if people can embrace that and think about the fact that, that if I have less fear, I can move forward uh, in a very effective way. I've kind of focused my attention on always practicing what it is that I preach. I, I've lost your audio. Oh, out. I said I was, I was looking for something. Uh, um, I have, I have sitting here, which I don't have, I don't know where I put it, but I have a shirt that says fearless on it that I wear. There you go. Um, <laughs> you get it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So my, I'm, my curious question though, is what, what's the first business that you started? The first thing where you were actually offering a product or a service in exchange for, for value. What was the fir first time that you did something like that? The very first time, and, and that's why I guess uh, my thought is, you know, it goes all the way back. My very first time was when I was a kid, I would go around and find things in the house that I or somebody else didn't want or need anymore. You know, like I'd, I'd ask my grandmother or my great-grandmother, my grandfather, you know, my mom, or I'd go through my own toy box and collect all those things. And then I'd put them in a little box, a little shoe box, and I'd go around to the neighborhood, to kids in the neighborhood and say, oh, do you want any of these things? And if they did, then, you know, I'd try, you know, two cents, five cents, 10 cents, 12 cents, you know, and- um, <laughs> You're so, selling them. Yeah, it was exactly, you know, it's out, we didn't need any of, you know, I only took things that nobody wanted or needed anymore and then sold them to people who, I guess you could call it, a, it was an early flipping career, you know? I yeah. don't want this anymore. Let me go ahead now and provide it to you <laughs> for a small fee. And now you can go enjoy it for however long you've had it. That's awesome. Yeah, I did something similar. I uh, um, when I was 13, I took a $50 loan out from my dad and uh, went and bought a bunch of candy at a big box store, and uh, brought it to school and was you know the proverbial guy on the New York street with my shirt, you know, here's my wares kind of thing. And I had uh, I was selling you know candy I bought for 50 cents for two bucks to my friends on campus. You Worked out really good all the way until uh, until the government shut me down because I wasn't old enough to have a business license and they told me I I couldn't sell on campus. So you know. <laughs> Right there with you. Right. Uh, <laughs> so next question is your superpower, right? So yes. if you think into your businesses and the things that you do and you provide, what is it specifically you think you bring to the businesses that you run or to your psychotherapy practice that you think really helps solve problems for people, the things that you use that really helps slay this world's villain, so to speak, that, you know, if someone else was standing in your same position, they wouldn't be able to bring to the table because it's just not their superpower, it's yours. It's interesting that you asked that question because the first thing I would say that that word villain that uses an interesting one. I would say that that is the key word, that one right there, because the villainy that we all tend to have in us is our self-doubt. And so mm -hmm. in every single thing that I've ever done, part of what I perceive as the innovation that I bring is always trying to get people to push the doubt aside and to focus on their strengths. Because so often we look at ourselves and we see, even if we do something well, we think, oh, well, anybody could do that. And the answer is just like your question, no. What you do well does not mean automatically that everybody else can do well. Sometimes when things come really easy to us, it's easy to think they come you know, that simply to everybody. And it's not true. It is our superpower. So the things that come easiest to us are our superpower, but the, but the villainy tends to be within us. It's that little voice that says, I'm not sure I can do that. Or that seems hard. I'm, you know, maybe I shouldn't even try. That's the villainy. And so if we all engage that superpower of knowing we have capabilities that other people don't have, just like your show points out, then we all kind of push that villain within us 
off to the side, kick it to the curb and just go on and be effective in whatever it is. In your case, you know, it's empowering people to recognize, I think everything that, I, you know, in looking at your show and, and listening to, to a, a huge load of your podcast, I realized that, that, you know, I recognize that you are trying to help people recognize for themselves what's inside of them and what empowers them. And I think that is, you know, I, I relate to that because I feel in a lot of ways that is what I've spent my life doing in a different way. But you and I both recognize that the true villain is not recognizing our own power. And so I would Absolutely. say yeah, the villain gets kicked to the curb and we all move forward in a positive <laughs> way. And you and I are doing a great job, I think. I think so. I hope so. Yeah, that's sort of, that's the reason the show exists. Um, I sort of, my, my, uh, my thinking is that if we can bring on people who have at some, in some portion of their life have gotten past that self-doubt and show like, hey, this is how someone is using their powers to help other people. My listeners, as we grow the listener base, will be able to see that over and over and over again and see that we all struggle with the same things. We're all doing the same stuff. We're following the same type of story. It's just the settings that are different, right? You know, um, where we're at and we, we have to go through that same process. And that's sort of my goal is to show that the heroes in all of us and all we have to do is just follow them so i think you do a good job of that really hopefully well thank you i appreciate that <laughs> so so um the other side of your superpower is yeah. your fatal flaw right so the fatal flaw is the thing that holds you back that you think that if you could have gotten rid of it you'd be 10 times further along than you are now right just like superman has his kryptonite is there something that you think has held back your business that if you were um that you've had to work on um and you know, how, I guess more importantly, how have you been working on that so other people who might str struggle with something similar can uh, can learn from you? You know, that that's a that's a fascinating thought, and uh, I I have thought about that a lot of times. If there was something, you know, that when I look at myself, that I would go, oh, this needs to be different, or if I could overcome this, and I would say that it is the tendency sometimes to hesitate, and. When, there are times when I clearly know what direction to take with something, but I'll hesitate. Either I'll hesitate because I'm afraid it's going to offend somebody, or I hesitate because I'm afraid, you know, other people won't understand it. Or, and so over the years, I've learned that if I push, like, like its own separate villain, if I push hesitation off to the side, when I have all the facts, take action. And so I would say, for me, that, that tendency sometimes to hesitate has made me realize that when I do that, I'm not positively affecting anything. You know, if, if Teddy Roosevelt talked about the fact that it doesn't really matter if you take the right action or the wrong action, take some action. Because then once you're in the action, you effectively can begin to make changes if you feel you've done something in a way that, that maybe you wish you had done differently. But not taking any action, nothing changes. And so yeah. that's, I would say it's hesitation would be. So what's, what I find really interesting about that is a, uh, like if you have a ship that's moving, it's really easy to turn the ship. Yes. Right. But if the ship is stationary, trying to get it to moving or get it to turn are both very difficult. Right. So to that point, if you're hesitating, if you're not moving, it's very difficult to course correct. Right. Um, right. Do, you, do you happen to uh, listen to country music? I do sometimes, yes. So, so there's a song by Maddie and Tay um, who they, they talk about uh, learning to fly on the way down. Right? And they're, they're talking about that hesitation, right? It's like, right. just, just jump. You can learn to fly on the way down. Exactly. All right. And, and I've always, I always, I really like that song for that message because that's sort of the way I live my life is it's like, Hey, I know where I want to go and might as well just jump. And I call it a, I call it being a parachute builder. 
right? Um, if you can, if you can be the kind of person who who knows you have the skills in yourself to build a parachute as you're falling, you can do anything, right? Right. Um, and and that's um, the, that's sort of the reality of it. it. You know, freaks my wife out a bit because we're constantly doing crazy stuff. Um, <laughs> but she's gotten used to it. She's like, I'm, you know, I'm totally down. I've I've watched you build enough parachutes on the way down to know that you're, you're we're not going to die. Um, but you know, out of the metaphor, that, that's the reality is is you have to you have to move forward and you have to make the jump and realize that you have the skill sets and the knowledge to put things together, right? And I always like to think of like what's what's the worst case scenario and build a plan for how I would come back from that. Cause you're like, chances are, it's not going to be the worst case scenario. And if I can figure out how to come back from that, it's going to be easier than that. Right? So, well, and you're doing, you know, in doing so you're, you're also doing something that you may not even be thinking about. Um, but I'm going to turn you on to, which is, I know that, uh, you know, I saw looking uh, on your website that you have a couple of young children. You are mentoring for them the ability to, you know, make decisions, take chances, try things, live within their space of creativity and imagination and build from that. And I can't express to you how important that is as a parent to do for your children. It's fantastic. Yeah, we got, uh, got four kids and a couple of them just had birthdays. So I've got a 10-year-old, a 6-year-old, a 3-year-old, and a 7-month-old. Wow. Okay. So yeah, you got lots of mentoring going on there. <laughs> yeah, lots of babies. Got three little girls and a little boy. And uh, you know, my my son's already working on his first couple of business plans because he's like, go. I'm gonna do what dad does. And you know, he's the they're they're the coolest people in the world. You know, I don't I don't know what I do without him. <laughs> well, and also too, it's really important to realize that you know our children watch us when we don't even realize it, and they they grow and learn from their observation of us as well as from the things that we tell them directly. So, so congratulations. I think oh yeah, you should see my uh, my two year old pretends to host a podcast on her uh, piece of cardboard. <laughs> I love uh, it. I love it. Yeah, yeah. So she's uh, she's adorable, and she is always um, she'll uh, she'll she'll tell you to be quiet because you know we we tell them to uh, keep their voice down when we're recording something and she'll like sit at her little uh, made up thing and and be like quiet i'm recording <laughs> so Love yeah. it. and my my son when he was that age he's 10 now but he was that age he would uh um he'd come in and sit next to me while i was working and uh you know he'd set up his own little fake little laptop and sit on his thing and type next to me uh, and just pretends to work <laughs> and it's proof positive that what you do and how they see you impacts their own self-perception and that's fantastic it really is yeah yeah and it's it's the primary reason why i generally and uh, uh, i'm not sure if this is helpful for anyone else but hopefully hopefully it is is that when i run into that hesitation that you were just talking about my first thought is not for um, myself, right? Because that's where that fear comes in. Is like if I I want to hesitate because of my own self-preservation, and am I going to do something wrong? Am I going to hurt something? And the question I ask myself is, what's the example I want to set for my children in this situation? Excellent. Right? Excellent. What do I want them to learn when they're faced with something? And I want them to I want them to have that gut reaction is I'm just going to do it, and I'll figure it out as I go. And that's perfect because that does actually push you probably out of your comfort zone into a place where you make a more creative and engaged decision. And that, that is empowering them to live a more uh, creative and engaged life for themselves. So I think, it, I think you're making great choices. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> I feel like I just got a little bit of psychotherapist from you. <laughs> I don't think I can exist in the world and not do that actually. So, no, no, that is, that is all right. So, 
Um, I want to talk a little bit about your common enemy. So generally, when we talk on the show about the common enemy, common enemy is something that you run into regularly with your clients, right? And so I think this would probably make more sense in the context of your psychotherapy business than in the real estate business, just because your, your clients in real estate businesses are, are, are homeowners and whatnot. Um, and I'm not sure how well it would tie in there. Maybe it does. But common enemy is something that you would remove from your client's life so you could help them get better results, right? Something that you run into on a regular basis with people that you know is holding them back, that if you had a magic wand and you could just you know tap them on the head with it and that would be gone um and you know they would just be able to move on and get better results in their life what would you think that is um it actually works in in both uh you know in both of those spaces yeah it, it works for well, i'm fascinated works, to hear both then yeah it, it works for it works for psychotherapy and you'll recognize the reasons why immediately and it also works in real estate and that may take a little bit more of an explanation but that's why i entitled the book fearless because in, in our personal lives and in our business life, so often fear guides our decisions and fear is limiting. So naturally in a psychotherapeutic perspective, the more you can get people to recognize their fears, because that's part of it. People oftentimes push their fears down, they sublimate them. And by not looking at the fear, they don't even realize they're reacting to the fear. So if you can get people to recognize what their fears are, to, to be mindful of their fears, and then in recognizing them, it's kind of like one of those things where we talk about the fact that sometimes if you can just be aware of whatever the issue is, the issue kind of dematerializes in front of you because it's almost mm -hmm. in its silence that it keeps its power. And so, so getting people to become fearless in their personal lives and about their personal decision-making empowers them in their life and makes them feel more confident and more in control of their own choices. When it comes to real estate, why that's so important is because so often people will, when something is difficult, they'll look away from it and say, well, you know what, my portfolio is kind of working the way it is right now. Yes, I'd like to be making more money, but it, it seems fine just the way it is. And climate change is, is dramatically beginning to impact that. But that feels like such a large existential problem that people feel overwhelmed by it. And that technically is what fear does. Fear overwhelms us and makes it hard for our minds to work easily, clearly, and logically. So when I say fearless real estate investing uh, in the era of climate change, it's because I do want people to become fearless. I want them to become experts on being able to look at a new investment, assess the risks, and decide yes, no, yeah, I can, I can some, add something to my bottom line with that, or no, you know what, the costs on that paperwork look good now, but when I look at my net operating income four years out with the kind of changes that are expected for the weather for this area or the sea rise in this area, whatever, it won't cost out anymore. And so it's those kinds of things that I really want people to become aware of. Find out what is holding you back. What is it that makes you fearful with relationship to these issues? And once you recognize them, address them and move forward so that you can make your portfolio as effective and profitable as possible by putting that fear again, uh, kicking it to the curb. So just random technical question on that. If you did know it wasn't going to cost out at, at year five, but it does cost out all the way through year four, would you build a plan that allowed you to exit by year four or would you just avoid the investment? Oh my gosh, that is like a brilliant question. Okay, so how I would, how I would address that <laughs> with anybody, and I'm looking at you right now as a very wise investor who's looking at you know, changes to your portfolio that could be very, very cost effective and bring in a lot of income for you. So what I would say to you is, it has a lot to do with what your risk tolerance is. And like, especially if you're looking at this with partners, you, 
it used to be that we could just sit down with our partners and go, wow, do these numbers work? Yeah, that looks good. Oh yeah, it looks good to, oh yeah, like you're mentioning, oh, it only looks good to year four. It only looks mm -hmm. good to year five. Okay, so we'll sell after that. Okay, well here, this now brings in a whole different element because let's say you're investing with partners. As I know you mentioned, you might be investing with a partner. When you're investing with partners, you have to literally sit down and say to them, okay, I've done some research. I've looked at the kind of changes that are expected in climate in this area. Here's the kind of research I've done. Here's what I'm pulling up. Here's what's happening with relationship to insurance in this area. You present them with the facts and you say, okay, so realistically, this works for the next five years or the next seven years, or, but we have to start anticipating these certain costs in year three, these certain costs in year five. So we need to kind of make some decisions about where we would want to keep it if we want to make the necessary infrastructure changes that would allow us to hold it because this is an area that a lot of people are migrating to. So potentially we're gonna keep getting a great tenant pool, but we have to do the things that would be necessary to make sure that the tenancy stays safe and the building stays in good condition. So it really is about examining, one, your risk tolerance, to your partner's risk tolerance. And in partner, I mean, even if the, the person that you're investing with is, is your spouse and they're not even actively taking part mm -hmm. in the investment, but they're going to live with the ramifications of the decision, that's still an investment partner. And really understanding how you feel about risk and knowing what the risks are that's, is so important to making the wise decision. And so what I would say to you is, that that's one of the things that I consult on is helping people understand the risks that they face in an area or a, with a specific property and evolving their idea about, okay, what are you up for? What are you not up for? And at what point should you keep or potentially release this investment or should you make it at all? So, so if I'm, if I'm under, if I'm understanding you correctly, what you're saying is, is, especially with things like climate change, that should be folded into your due diligence and your yes. financial analysis of that property um, through the life of it. Um, and I, I, if I'm understanding correctly, a lot of people aren't yet doing that and are gonna suffer from the ramifications as, it, as you know, the world continues to change. Yes, you are absolutely correct. And as a matter of fact, there's an entire uh, section in the book about how to begin to realign whatever your typical due diligence process is and begin to factor in the extra layer of things that you need to do to think about climate change with relationship to not just the immediate purchase, but what your long range planning would be for property. So yes, you're absolutely correct. It's about so, making sure your due diligence is complete. So I'm, I'm just, just cause I'm, I'm curious about this topic and because cl climate change is, is, is one of the, the subsections of things that are changing rapidly. And I'm curious, how much, how much effort do you put in due diligence on the, the technological change, the changes that are happening? Things like, you know, the automation of tech, of uh, transportation and automations that you're seeing in other places. Um, and, you know, there's, I know there's a, like California, for instance, has been implementing rules with regard to automated energy where they're like, hey, you have to have, your, your building needs to be automated to the point that like, if there's no one in the room, the lights turn off. Like those are things that are becoming laws. Right. Um, and, and like, so, so there's, um, when it comes to doing your due diligence and looking at things that are changing, are you, are you also spending a lot of time on the technology change as well when you're doing your due diligence? Absolutely. You're paying attention to the things that in the long run can improve and impact your property in a positive way, as well as the things can, that can impact your property in a negative way. So you bring up a great point. One of the things that I 
you say to people is it's always a really good idea when you're stopping to look at a piece of property, stopping to think about how much your tenants are going to be having cars or how much, uh, how close are you to public transportation that is considered to be reliable public transportation? Uh, is there a new subway going in? Is there a new streetcar line going in? Uh, is there a, an expanded bus system that would allow your tenants to be able to leave their cars at home and be able to, to you know, ride public transportation? I'm not saying that is something you have to do. I'm saying that if you make note of those things, that's a property that potentially is in a city that is trying to be more responsible about how it looks at its carbon footprint. And by doing that, that's likely to be a place that's going to see an expansion of job growth, which means mm -hmm. people follow jobs. It means you're going to see a climate migration into cities that are taking on that level of conscientious endeavor. Yeah, or, and, you know, makes sense. like there's there's a lot of a lot of things that are happening like that all over the country. So things like certain states are legalizing weed. So properties that you can do growth indoors are going to be more in demand than they were before. Or um, things like uh, um, you know the proverbial you know single tenant lease um, building you have that is currently leasing to someone who was making horse carriages when the automobile was coming onto the market. Right, like you, you have to be thinking about those kind of tenant. things. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to lose that tenant when the when when the horse carriages are no longer viable, right? Yeah. So, like those are the kind of things that you need to be thinking about when you're doing the due diligence for your real estate. Right. I mean, because it's true when you're buying, for instance, um, a, a, let's say it's a, a, an office plaza, and if you're looking at it, it's you know if if you've got people that have businesses in there that are very much businesses that are more and more moving onto the web you may not have a stable mm -hmm. a, a tenant pool as you would if you're you know, picking up a shopping plaza that has a chiropractor in it or a, uh, you know, a, a spa and facial location in it or maybe has a pediatrician in it or the things that people can't go onto the internet, the services that cannot be gotten anywhere but from face to face. Those are the kinds of brick and mortar businesses that have to continue to exist. So making choices about if you're, if you, you're picking up a, you know, a shopping center and everybody in it has some kind of business that within the next five years, you can see, oh, wow, that's probably all going to, every single one of those businesses is going to They're going to be automated or webbed out of existence. Exactly. You know that you're probably <laughs> going to have to replace that tenant pool and dependent upon the length of those leases, the possibility exists that a whole lot of those people are not going to be able to finish out their lease. So again, we look, at, we look at technology, but technology is very much being impacted by climate. Every technology company is a good place to be watching. Where are they setting up locations? Where are they moving uh, to place warehouses? Where are they moving to set up infrastructure situations for, for, uh, for their uh, employees to be? Because again, climate change dictates climate migration. Climate migration dictates places where people are going because they want jobs. But it also means that every single one of those people needs a place to live. And a whole bunch of the members of the family that move there don't aren't gonna work at that employer. They're gonna to wanna to be setting up businesses or providing income and opportunity for restaurants or whatever might be there. So really climate does impact real estate in so many layers. It's it's all it's almost unfathomable how many layers it that that, that Yeah, yeah, it's it's really interesting too and we're we're just in such an interesting time right now because there's a lot of things that are happening. Um, that are making really big shifts really quickly, right? So like we've been familiar for the last hundred years or so that big populations, right? Like the baby boomer generation, everything they do affects pretty much everything, 
Right. Right. Um, and that generation is currently the one moving into the uh, retirement community. That's right. Right. And so like, that's a big change, but we have another change where like our, our current generation that's coming into money, right. Okay. Is your millennials. Right. right. And they're starting families and they're starting businesses and they're, in, they're getting out of their college careers and all that fun stuff. And they buy completely different than any generation before them. Right. Absolutely. They think differently. They buy differently. They care about different things. And it's like dramatically different. It's not like a little bit different. Like it has been for generation to generation. It's just, they're the first generation that grew up with a phone in their pocket. Right. right? That, you know, and access to all the world's information and it's a huge change. Right. And then you have, um, you know, what we call it like legal changes, right. Where things are, are happening where, you know, things are legal now that they weren't legal before or aren't legal that are, that are changing things, um, pretty rapidly and you have climate and stuff that's changing. So there's, there's just a lot of, a lot of stuff that's happening now that makes your ability to operate in spite of fear, right. To your point, to, yes. um, uh, more valuable now than it probably has been ever before, right? So, but also scarier. <laughs> yes, you're right, because as things change, you know, one of the things that we know as, as a species is we're not all that happy with change. We kind of like things to- That's too bad, because we change a lot. I, I agree. But we kind of like things to go along in a way where we establish a routine. And then there are those of us, and you and I, I think, are, are people like that, who it's like change is kind of really exciting and really stimulating. It makes you think on all different kinds of exciting ways. But the difficulty with climate change is that so many of the changes are things that we're having to extrapolate and try to decide, okay, well, it used to be this way and the patterns for the weather were this way. What can we anticipate will be more or less with relationship to that? Uh, you know, there's just, the, it makes it hard a lot of times and to factor in what we think is going to happen. And that's why the research becomes so important. And I think a lot of times the research is difficult for people and feels kind of heady and overwhelming. But again, it's like you said, well, if we can embrace change, know the change is happening and then be willing to go, okay, so change is happening. Now, what are we going to do about it? it? It feels empowering. And it, and then you can make decisions that you might not have been able to have made if fear were standing in front of your ability to see forward. So if, if your common enemy is fear, right. And learning how to operate in spite of fear, that's the thing you fight against then your driving force is the thing that you fight for, right? So just like Spider-Man fights to save New York or Batman fights to save Gotham or Google fights to index and categorize all the world's information, what is it that you fight for with your business and your investing career? And, you know, particularly with your book, right, that you're, uh, that you're putting out and, and trying to help people with? Well, and, and again, it, it, it comes down to the two separate, you know, careers that for in my life have, have very much intersected, which is empowering people, empowering people by pushing uh, you know, hesitation and fear to the side and embracing learning what they can do to feel better about the quality of their investments, better about the quality of their real estate, better about the, the, what their portfolio looks like. And ultimately in making those choices, making choices that allow them to not feel caught and trapped by the changes in climate that are already occurring, but instead to feel like those could be opportunities, not just for their own portfolio, but to empower the lives of the people who their real estate provides housing and businesses for. Uh, it's as you mentioned earlier, and, and it was a wise thought that you had, which is that, you know, when, when we can empower others uh, and, and make others feel better, in turn, we, we make things better for ourselves. And such, you know, when you're talking about your investment in the retirement community, uh, you are doing so, yes, to benefit your portfolio, but also because you realize this is a population that 
you feel could be better served if you were in that space. And that's the way it should be. It should be something where when we're making a decision, we're making a decision free of fear and a decision that not only empowers us and our portfolio as investors and as business professionals, but also as people within our community who value the other people in our community. Yeah, so I have I have an interesting question that I think like lines in really well with that, right? We've been talking a lot about, you know, it, overcoming fear and hesitation and then fighting for like moving, you know, moving forward and actually taking those jumps. I'm curious in your in your past. I know this this goes for me, but I'm just curious whenever you've been faced with that with with something where you're like I'm either at this point I'm going to hesitate or not do something because of fear or I'm going to take action and figure it out as I go. Have you ever regretted the times where you just jumped? and wish you had hesitated? I, gosh, such a good question. And I would say, no, I don't regret them because I'm one of those people who really views even something that somebody else might go, oh, wow, that was a mistake. I look at it and go, but it was a lesson. It was an adventure. If I hadn't (laughs) tried it, if I hadn't taken that plunge, I wouldn't have learned that lesson, had that fun, filed away that knowledge for the next time. So I'd, I'd have to say, there's really no time when any choice like that wasn't a benefit. Yeah, and, and I was going to say, looking, looking back over all the things that have happened in my life or in the same vein of thinking, I, the only ones that I regret are the ones where I didn't jump. Perfect. That, yes. Right? Absolutely. Um, because I'm like, man, I wish I would have jumped faster or jumped sooner or jumped at all. Yes. Um, and all the times where I have, even when you've fallen flat on your face, I'm like, I learned so much. It was a great adventure. I've got good stories from it. Even if you right. get nothing from, this, from it except a good story, it's right. still worth it. <laughs> I agree. And you know what? You can't regret what you don't do. You know, you can sit around regretting that you didn't do it, but you can't really regret that you did do it because you never got the opportunity to experience it. So I think it's always better to give it the try, you know, throw your attention to it, do what you can. The worst that happens is it doesn't do what you want it to do, but the best that happens is it's so much bigger and more wonderful than you ever could have imagined. Yeah, one of my, uh, one of my life quotes that I have posted up and read regularly is from uh, Mark Twain, who says, uh, 20 years from now, you'll regret more of the things you didn't do than the ones you did. So throw off the bow line, sail away from the safe harbor, explore, dream, and discover. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's perfect. That's my uh, my... What do you call it? My live my life that way. That's how I try to live anyway. Your, your inner mantra. Yes, exactly. My inner mantra. Um, so I'm going to talk about something a little more practical, right? Yes. So um, we talk all the time on this show about your hero's tool belt. These are the practical tools you use to get make your business go around, right? So just like a Thor has his big magical hammer or your neighborhood police officer has his bulletproof vest that he puts on every day. What are some tools that you use on a regular basis that you think you couldn't run your business without, right? Maybe that's your calendar that you use to manage your schedule or, you know, the, you know, the Excel spreadsheet you use to do your financial analysis on your, uh, your, your properties. What's something that you use on a regular basis all the time? And you're like, man, my business just wouldn't survive without this tool in it. Um, you know, the, I would have to say my phone you know, more than anything else, I use my phone and, and because I keep all kinds of information on it, I'm constantly on it. But I have a to-do list every day. There's, um, there's an inner kind of quality of calm that comes from me when I know, okay, these are the things I'm doing. I accomplish these things, boom. And I then, when I have those things accomplished, uh, you know, Warren Buffett is, is uh, in my opinion, you know, just an amazing investor. And one of the things that he says, people don't take enough time to relax, to just 
be calm and just be living their lives. And he considers that a huge factor in his ability to make wise decisions is because he also gives his mind, it's not like he's running out and meditating and finding that kind of quiet. It's just the quiet of being able to be present for himself. And so when I run through my list of things that I needed to get done, and if, you know, sometimes you look at your list and go, oh no, I don't need that. Sometimes I don't need this. Oh, I can do that, you know, on Wednesday instead of on Monday or whatever it is. I'll move things around. I'll make it a comfortable way to be able to move through the day, handed, managing all the appointments and everything else. And then I give myself time to go for a hike. You know, um, if I'm in an area where there's an ocean, I love to go to the ocean and walk on the, the beach. I love to go hiking like in the Rockies or anywhere. You put a hill in front of me, I got to climb it. I mean, so I, I love I love road trips. Yeah. I love just being on the road and seeing things that I wouldn't see if I wasn't, you know, driving. You can fly over all kinds of things, but they just then look like little postage stamps down there. Like a, a, the country looks like a quilt if you're flying over it. But when you're, when you're in an automobile, you know, as much as I love being in the air and I love getting places quickly, I love the ability to be on the ground, talk to people, experience what's happening, see amazing things, you know, driving down the road and all of a sudden you look over and you go, hey, you know, there's that landmark over there. Let's go. It's only going to take an extra half an hour. I love doing those things. I'm very spontaneous. So the list, um, and again, it's an app on my phone that I use that the list allows me to be so practical, get the things done that will allow me to go, oh, good. I got everything done I needed to get done. Now I can go on and just have kind of the relaxation time, the mental ex exploration time. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things we talk about all the time on this show is um, one of my other mantras for life is giving yourself permission to play. Right. And um, I call it permission to play specifically because people struggle with it. And we have this this thinking in our head, which is backwards, that I must first accomplish in order to then play, right? right? That play that play is a reward for work done well. Right. And what I have realized over the course of my life is that when you relax and you do the play properly, you are able to work well. Yes. Um, and, and it's actually the other way around, that it's the foundation of work well done is being well rested and relaxed. So you have to give yourself permission to play. Yes. Um, and that comes in, in a world where we do have to actually get things done, right? So, right. you know, that's where we're doing things like having a calendar or to-do list. We're like, these are the things I need to get done. Right. And when I do get these things done, then I'm giving myself permission to go play, right? And that's, that's, a, <laughs> um, that's, that's one of the things that I like to, uh, to work through in my life. It's like how um, I, I build all of my businesses and the things that I do in a, in a way that I'm like, I want to maximize the ability to play right? With myself, with my friends, with my family, with my kids, right? You know, yesterday we spent the afternoon on the, uh, the cold beach out here learning about clamming and swinging on the swings with the kids at the, uh, um, on, you know, just at the resort that we're at here. Right. And that's, that's, why, that's why we do all of the stuff that we do. Like you, you run your business, you do those things for the impact they have, or you do your job it every day because that's what you need to do to pay the bills. But really, we live this life to play. Exactly, exactly. And, and it's easy, as you mentioned, to lose track of that because we live in such a, a, a world of expectations. People are always expecting things of us. We expect things of ourselves. There's paper that needs to get pushed. There's, you know, the programs that need to be launched. And, and there's so many different things that we have to be doing on a daily basis. It's easy to lose track of that. And, you know, in some ways, you know, people think that automation has made our lives harder. 
in other ways, it's made our lives a lot easier. The ability, I used to keep a, a huge, and you know, my friends would laugh at me if, if uh, you know, if you could actually see it, and, and a, a huge calendar of things that had to get done all the time. But it was a physical calendar, you know, it, it comes mm -hmm. from back in the days when like I'd be sitting at a desk that I had to be going to every day and be, you know, making sure that things got accomplished. And, and so then I transitioned that to just like, you know, a physical list that I would be checking things off on a daily basis, but everything that didn't get done would have to get moved to the next list or onto another list. And, and so there's no two ways about it. Technology, I, and I know you have technology the way I do, technology's made that so much easier because, you know, bam, I've got a, a, yeah, an app on my phone. I just keep my list on there. Okay, I'm done with that for the day. Boom, move the whole rest of the list to another day or another, a whole other area in the program, different folder. And it, it has freed me from feeling overwhelmed by the amount of things I have to get accomplished because I have a very busy life. And I know you understand this as well. I have a very busy life. And in order to be able to accomplish the things I do, I need something that makes it easy for me to keep track of things, know when it's done, know when it needs to get moved and not have to think twice about it. So that definitely would be my, my superpower tool uh, as a superhero uh, would be the ability to be able to manage the list in a quick, quick and efficient way so that I get everything yeah, done. And and have that you know, time of relaxation. To bring that uh, full circle to some of the stuff we were talking about before, if you go back to 2007, when the iPhone was, re was released, a calendar on your phone was not a thing. Like not very many people had it, right? A calendar or to-do lists. And if you did happen to be one of the few nerds that had one of those expensive smartphones like myself, the calendar app on there cost $50 right? To add to your phone. It didn't come with it. It was a $50 edition. And the right. contact book that you wanted to have with the calendar cost another $50. And if you wanted a to-do list app, it cost $50, right? So your, your smartphone that already cost $500 cost $300 more for a couple of apps, right? And, you know, paper calendars, the people who are in the business of making paper calendars today don't have the same business they had 10 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> right? So the other thing for me was that, like you said, you know, I, you had, you had all the apps, you know, you paid the extra for the apps. I was, I was that other person. I had the, I had my phone and then I had my Palm pilot that was keeping track. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we're talking, taking ourselves back there. You can yeah. Yeah. There you go. Now, you know, now, now you know how old we are. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's, that's a, um, it's, it's a good point. And it's something that I've actually been surprised how often that comes up on this show that how important your calendar and your tasks are to living a life of freedom. Mm -hmm. right? That, that the people who have the most freedom in their lives have the most structured calendars. Um, and that to me has, is something that I thought about myself. And I've actually, I've had people who are not entrepreneurs tell me that living my life on my calendar is dumb. And, and I'm like, I don't, I don't get that. I, like, I don't get that mindset. Um, Cause they're like, Oh, you don't, you know, you're, you're tied to your calendar. I'm like, my calendar is like my lifeblood. And every entrepreneur I've talked to thinks the same way. They're like, calendars equal freedom. <laughs> Yeah, because, you know, you, there's so many things that must be accomplished in order to be able to keep your business moving forward that the ease of being able to not have to juggle all those details in your head allows you to be the ability to be able to be creative and mm -hmm. have the, the availability to ideate and because you're not trying to remember, oh, wait, what time does that mean tomorrow? You know you have a place to go to to look for what time that meeting is. If you're supposed to be, you know, standing in front of a conference giving a, a talk, you know what day that is and what time that is. You don't have to keep all those details in your head. You're free to just relax or to explore. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things I've, I've tried to explain, and I probably don't articulate this as well because I don't have the same psychotherapy background that you have. I don't quite understand the mind as well. but is is the when 
when I have my work schedule set aside, like this is when I'm getting my work done or this particular work done. And this is when I'm getting this particular work done. And this is when I'm spending my time with my family. It allows you to be in that space a hundred percent. You are right. right. Yes. And I don't know what the name for that is or what, what that's called, but it's like, this is my family time. I can just be there just doing that. Um, and that allows you to be, um, you know, a question I get all the time, you know, we have four ch children because not a lot of people have four children is like, man, how do you, how do you, how are you like giving your all to all of them? Right. And one of the things that I realized a long time ago is that you can't ever give a hundred percent of yourself to everything all the time. You have to pick who gets a hundred percent right now. Right. Right. And what gets a hundred percent right now. And if you can set up your life, it's like, Hey, this is when my family gets a hundred percent of me. And this is when my work gets a hundred percent of me. And this is when you know, myself gets 100% of me, right? That kind of, um, that kind of thinking. And I don't know what that is, like what, what the words for that are, but that's, uh, that's how I sort of feel about the calendar. The calendar gives you that kind of freedom. Well, and the ability, you know, the truth is that children require attention. That's the reality of what it means to be a little person who, who is being raised by big people who are helping them understand how to navigate the world. But in actuality, children also need the opportunity to be on their own, to have their own sense of self, experiment, try things, play in ways that are not directed by adults because adults have their own set of expectations and mindsets and hurt themselves and, structures and habits. And, and so sometimes some of the most, the most empowering things for a child are the opportunity to just explore for themselves and try new things. What's it like if I run over there to, into the water and I'm splashing around, you know, yeah, mom and dad are right there. I know I'm safe, but I don't have to be with them to be able to know that I'm safe. I can be with myself doing fun things that, that feel explorative to me and at the same time still have that sense of safety back there. So, so I, think, I think that you're doing your children a service by the way that you're, you're managing your life because again, everything is mentoring. So they're saying, so dad concentrates on the things he needs to do when he's doing them and then he's able to concentrate and spend time with us when he's not doing those things. He's not being pulled in multiple directions in one time. So I think you're doing a great job. Well, thank you. Yeah, and it's it's a it's an interesting thing too, and it's one of the things that I've I've really come to notice with the whole child rearing thing is that, um, for whatever reason, it does not matter how many times you tell the child the thing that they need to know until they've experienced it themselves. Um, you know, it doesn't sink in. Like, and, and I've I've gone through this with all three of my older children. They've gotten to the point where, you're like, you know, don't touch the pan; it's hot. It just came out of the oven. I don't care that the cookies are on it. Don't touch it; it's hot. And it's not until they touch it and burn themselves, then they're like, "Ow, that's hot!" <laughs> right? And you're like, now next time you tell them it's hot, don't touch it. They're like, "Yeah, I remember because I burned myself on it last." Time. <laughs> well, and the good thing is the three other ones that are standing there that just watched that one touch it and get burned hot. They now had the opportunity for observational <laughs> learning. Oh wow, that was hot! I'm glad I wasn't. Yeah, touched it. I'm glad I didn't touch yeah. it. Yeah, I tell my son all the time the best experience is uh, someone else's. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and it's it's interesting though that you mentioned that because one of the things that actually comes to mind for me is with relationship to the kinds of things that you mentioned a moment ago regarding, for instance, some of the things that are happening in California. There are situations where we as investors, and I know that you're an investor as well, you know, 
we get the opportunity to look at some of the situations that people are undergoing and recognizing, okay, I don't need to be in that situation to know that, wow, I would not want to be in that situation. And what kind of effective mm -hmm. choices can I be making to avoid that situation? And that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, I do point out a lot in the book and to the point where, you know, it, it may seem like I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of hammering it because I am, which is, doing the research because for me, I would rather the people's portfolios not be damaged, that they do the, the, the time consuming work of looking at things and kind of getting it, you know, cemented in their head what they do and do not need to do. And if, if it, sometimes it can feel overwhelming to people and that's when I say, contact me, we'll talk it over, we'll figure out a way. Because it, what it comes down to is not, you don't have to make the mistakes. There are, there's enough information out there to begin to make choices without having to make the mistakes, not having to touch the cookie, the hot cookie pan, but just wait and choose the cookie off the pan that you want when it's cool. So that, yeah. you know, it, it's the same kind of premise. It really is. Absolutely. Are you tired of trying to write webinars that don't consistently convert? How would you like to have a webinar that effortlessly created sales in your online business? You can. Introducing the Webinar Alchemy Workshop. Webinar Alchemy Workshop is an online masterclass that will help you write incredibly persuasive webinars for your online courses quickly and easily. Using what you learn in this class, you can build a webinar that educates your entire audience while still creating sales. For a limited time, you can purchase this masterclass for only $7, and you'll get the exact framework I've personally used to help my clients sell more than a million dollars worth of online coaching and training just over the last year. Simply text the word ALCHEMY, A-L-C-H-E-M-Y, to 444-999, and I'll send you all the details. The music is by Purple Planet Music. Visit www.purple-planet.com. And now, back to the show. So, I'm going to transition a little bit and talk about your own personal heroes, right? So, uh, Frodo had Gandalf, Luke had Obi-Wan Kenobi, Robert Kiyosaki had his rich dad. Who were some of your heroes? Were they real-life mentors? Were they uh, speakers or authors? Maybe peers who were just a couple years ahead of you? And how important were they to what you've accomplished so far in your businesses? You know, that's a really interesting question. And the first the first thought that comes to mind for me is my my mom. My mom was a was a a very very thoughtful, engaged, and and uh, imaginative person who was always always on that fearless path. So that would that definitely was was a very early role model for me. The other thing that I would say though is I I happen to really enjoy school a lot, and I have had you know whether we're talking preschool, uh, elementary school, middle school, high school, college, I have been lucky enough to, when I went on to get my, my master's in that, I, I would say unquestionably, I've had some of the most amazing teachers who were uh, so empowering, so committed to their students, to, so committed to the education that they were trying to offer you. I, I, I don't think I could say enough about how lucky I feel I was to not only have amazing teachers, but amazing teachers that made learning come to life for me. And so I, I think I've tried to model that in the way that I mentor and train people. Uh, and also I was a college instructor for quite a while. And I know I brought uh, a lot of the things that have been valuable to me forward into how I tried to uh, teach and mentor my students. Because for me, it, it, you know, every single one of those heroes that you mentioned, the, 
uh, you know, Frodo and Gandalf, and you know, is a is a really good example. Gandalf, more than anything else, is a is a tremendous mentor, a teacher and a mentor. And that, yeah. and I bring that back to the the work you're doing with your in your own relationship with your children. It's so empowering when we we just exist as ourselves, doing the best we can to be the best we can, and how much that informs others. And so, yes, I would say I would say I've had some incredible teachers in my life. Yeah, I had a, I had some really good teachers as well. I find it, uh, I count it uh, quite a blessing because some of the things that I have going on in my life now, I, I get paid to do uh, copywriting, a lot of writing and stuff. And when I was in uh, seventh grade, I had a, a teacher that, uh, you know, he assigned us our first like long form essay in school. You know, that first one you ever have to write. And yes. he, he wrote, um, you know, I wrote my paper and turned it in and then he handed everyone's paper back and he didn't hand mine back. And I was like, oh no, like I must have really, really effed it up if he didn't hand my paper back. And he's like, I need to see you after class before I give you your paper. Um, and, and I was like, oh no, like right. I must have yeah. really, really botched it. And um, so I show up after class and he was like, I didn't want to give you your paper back in, in class without explaining this to you first. He's like, but you don't write at your level. Right? He's like, you write at a college level for a seventh grader. He's like, so I graded you at a college level. Um, and he's like, so I basically ripped your paper to shreds. He's like, but the point is <laughs> you so far exceeded an A in this class that I just graded you at a higher level. And he's like, I didn't want you to like cry in class. <laughs> um, that sensitivity he offered you. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, that was very nice of him. But he, um, he was like, I'd like to, he's like, I can't, he's like, I can't teach you more about writing um, in the classroom setting because you wouldn't like you don't fit the mold. He's like, so I'd like you to get permission from your parents to stay after class once a week and I'll mentor you in writing. And he did that for me um, and, and helped, uh, helped me become a much better writer. So anyways, yeah, I had, uh, I had cool teachers like that as well that, uh, that really helped push me forward. Yeah, and you know, the, the, those are such important moments that we contribute to others when those situations happen. And, and I, I, I respect the fact that your instructor took that kind of time and mentored you, but also recognized your talent and your capability and made sure that you got the opportunity to recognize it. And that's so important. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things that like, he probably doesn't even remember me, right. And it's like 20 years ago. Right. And it's just, it's a thing that he does as a teacher. And I, you know, I love teachers because of that, because they get, they get kids for six months or a year at a time and they make a huge impact and then they may never hear about him again or even get a chance to think about him again. Right. And right. I don't know, it's such but, a selfless thing. I've been to one that your teacher would definitely remember you. I do. Possibly, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's, uh, let's bring the interview home for our listeners a little okay. bit and talk. Last question is your guiding principles. What are the top one or two principles or actions that you use regularly today that you think contribute to the success and influence you enjoy in your business? Maybe something that you wish you'd known when you first started out on this entrepreneurial journey. Without question, I have always been a curious person. I, uh, the minute I hear about something, uh, and, and I find it interesting, which I find oh so many things interesting. Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to research it. I'm going to research it. I'm going to dig deep. I'm going to find out everything I can about it um, quickly and efficiently to then be able to have that knowledge at my mental fingertips. So I would say that, that the curiosity and again, that incessant need to solve problems. You, you know, I've, I've been a person who spent my whole life recognizing when, that when people feel that they have problems, it, 
it causes such anxiety for them and it holds them back, even if the problem is, you know, as simple as, uh, how do I get to the grocery store when my car doesn't work? You know, I'm, I'm going to ideate the, the heck out of that. It makes it a lot easier now that there's Uber and Lyft. But uh, it's one of those things that I, I just, I can't turn that off, that problem-solving ability. Uh, it, and, and I do usually come up with really creative uh, ways of handling things. And so you put those things together for me and, and that incredible curiosity that is just constant. And then that problem-solving ability, you put them together and they do create relentless innovation because I can't not solve the problem, can't not try and solve the problem in a way that's as efficient as possible because I very much uh, like things that are done quickly and efficiently. So, so I would say that, pro that probably would, those would be the ones. Yeah, absolutely. So relentless innovation and curiosity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, problem solved yeah, so, at the end of time. <laughs> that basically uh, wraps up the interview portion of our show. I got two more simple things I want to do. One of them I do on every show I call the Hero Challenge. Hero Challenge is simple. Um, and it's basically this. Do you have someone in your life or in your network that you think has a cool entrepreneurial story? Who are they? First names are fine. And why do you think they should come on our show and share their story? That's a really good question. and I'm I, I have uh, I really do have a, a lot of people like that um, I, I feel very lucky in that way um, what so is the first one that popped into your head well actually the <laughs> first person that popped into my head is uh, a friend of mine who is a psychotherapist um, and uh, her name is uh, Dr. Christine Rank and she uh, is very much committed to people engaging their creativity in ways, I mean, she wrote a fantastic book about it. Um, and uh, it's, it, it's it, I would say that in portions of my life when I have felt like I'm stymied or I'm you know, not coming up with an idea, I can pop open Christine's book and bam, I've got a new idea. So uh, Dr. Christine Rank, I definitely would say that she's-, she's um, Yeah, so we'll try and uh, connect afterwards and then see if we can get her to come on the show and share her story. Um, so last thing, basically, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. It's been a fascinating conversation, longer than most of my other, uh, other conversations generally, which is cool. Um, but I want to find out from you, where can people find you? Where can they pick up your book? Um, where can they, uh, you know, um, any of the other things that you, you offer for clients, where can they find you? Um, and who are the ideal type of people to reach out for your services? Um, so the, the, to be able to find me, that's a pretty easy thing. You can go to relentlessinnovator.com. Um, or you can go to blsheldon.com. Either one of those places would, would give you immediate information and access. The, the place where you can locate the book is the book is uh, in multiple formats. You can find it on Amazon in paperback uh, or, or Kindle edition. It's also available on Amazon in audiobook form. It's also available on iTunes in audible book form. I mean, pardon me, in audiobook form. And uh, so the the, I'm pretty easy to reach uh, and, and reach out to. In terms of the people that could benefit most, I would say that while the book can be read by anybody, it really does give you uh, a good understanding of how climate change is creating impacts in all of our lives. I look at it as a book that's primarily for the real estate industry and all the ancillary industries associated with real estate, from realtors to insurance agents, to property managers, to property inspectors, appraisers, mortgage companies. Uh, it, it really is a full service book for understanding how our entire industry will uh, and is already being impacted by climate change. The last uh, like 20 pages of the book 
are over a hundred resources for places that people can go to understand how climate change is impacting different segments of uh, of, of life with regards to real estate. So, and, and those are also available on the website at, uh, if you go to Relentless Innovator, and you look up in the upper right-hand corner, it says download the resources. Those are the same resources that are, that are at the back of the book. So people can just start clicking through and reading things that could be relevant to them. But also if you go to Relentless Innovator, you'll see I do a lot of public speaking. I do consulting for clients who are in need or assistance of how to look at their real estate or how to understand the process better with relationship to clients the change and they can find me there and uh, send me an email and let's talk find ways that we so can make it just simple. just real quick for me if someone is currently evaluating a deal and they're listening to this show yes is there a tell that they should be looking at be like i should absolutely be reading this book before i make a decision on this property that yeah, would be like yes i would say absolutely because every region of the country and every region of the world i also cover things that are going on globally has unique tests that are going to be occurring and are already occurring. And so there is a section in the book, chapter four, that is completely all about the various risks around the globe and the areas that are impacted with those kinds of risks. So I would definitely say that, and there's an entire section on how to do your due diligence. Again, you, you already have your layer of due diligence that we all always do as real estate investors, but the layer of how you look at climate change on top of that due diligence and how you cost that out, how you start thinking about cost relationship, that's also there. And again, if anybody has any questions, I always want them to feel very comfortable. Just go into the, the website, relentlessinnovator.com, and let's start talking, finding ways that you can make your investments as profitable as possible in light of climate change. Awesome. Well, that I think pretty much concludes our, our uh, um, episode here. So if you're listening and you want to pick up the book at relentlessinnovator.com um, or blsheldon.com, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Do you have any final words of wisdom before we uh, hit the stop record button on this episode? I, I would just say that whatever you do, just keep kicking fear to the curb and be a fearless, relentless innovator and you yourself will be affected in your life. Yeah, absolutely. Remember, you can uh, learn to build that parachute on the way down. Yes, because if you're paying attention, you will find all the information you need at your fingertips. You just have to keep staying aware. Awesome. Thank you for coming on the show, P. Thanks a lot. You have a good day, Richard.